0: Well, here's 2020 so far. Fires in Australia, swarms of locusts in Africa. We just got murder hornets over here. A global pandemic caused by COVID 19. Now, experts are saying that this pandemic could cause, and I quote, famines of biblical proportions in about three different, uh, three dozen countries. We've had tornadoes and hurricanes and Saharan dust clouds, oh my. Um, Political unrest globally, rumors about what Iran will do, rumors about what North Korea will do, what China will do. Political unrest here at home, protests, riots, looting, concern about economic collapse, concern about the moral corruption that seems to be multiplying in our nation at an exponential rate. And there's, there's anger everywhere. Even Christians are biting and devouring one another. What, what in the world is going on? Is this, as those great theologians, R.E.N. once said, is this the end of the world as we know it? Or could it just be the end of the world? It's not really a bad question. Every generation that has experienced traumatic events like the ones we have, or in some generations even worse than we have, have asked the question, is this the end of the world as we know it? Is this the end of the world? And these were the questions on the hearts of Peter, James, John, and Andrew as Jesus talked to them in Mark chapter 13. So let me start with verse 1. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let me just stop right there. And let's, let's look and you're going to need to just keep that open in front of you in your Bible or your bulletin. Look at what happens between verse 2 and verse 3. There's silence. No one says a word. They're walking just over that half a mile down the steep ridge on which the city of Jerusalem was perched into and through the Kidron Valley on the eastern side of the city, and then up the gentle slopes of the Mount of Olives. And there, they sit down facing the city, and they they see it's a, it's a clear view from just a half a mile away, from the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple perched there on the edge of Jerusalem. They see its immensity, they see its beauty. This is the second temple originally built by Zerubbabel and then later expanded by Herod, it's been there for over 500 years. Ever since the people of Israel returned from their captivity in Babylon, Herod's renovation of the second temple, temple included ornately carved white marble stones which were 37 and a half feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. I don't know, would one of those stones fit on this stage? The engineers would have to tell me. Those are huge. White marble. Herod's expansion of the temple ended up covering one-sixth of the whole city of Jerusalem. It was huge. One commentator said that the temple probably looked like a mountain of white marble decorated with gold. This is what they're looking at as they sit with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And they're remembering what he had just told them. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That temple? And he was right. Less than 40 years later, that's just one generation later, after Jesus said these words, the Romans demolished that temple. In A.D. 70, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus was an eyewitness of this war and the destruction of Jerusalem, and he wrote a book about it called The History of the the Jewish War. And in it, he said that the Roman destruction of Jerusalem was so complete that a future visitor to the city would have had a hard time uh, telling that there was inhabitants in that place. It was complete and utter destruction. So can you imagine what these disciples are thinking? This building had been the center of their national life for over 500 years. It would be like someone predicting that the White House and Capitol Hill would be utterly destroyed by an invading army. How would we we feel about someone predicting that? How would we feel about that happening? But this is even worse because this temple was also the place where the presence of God dwelt with his people. To them, the destruction of the temple would not simply be the end of the world as they knew it. It could be none other than the end of the world. So let's continue reading. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Matthew tells this same story, describes the same event. But he includes another question that Mark didn't include, and that's this. They say, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Because you see, in their minds, when Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple, he was also talking about the end of the world and his coming again at the end of the age. They they just couldn't help but put those two things together. And so when Jesus answers the disciples, he talks about both of these events. Uh, They're two different events separated by an unknown period of time. What makes this chapter a challenge is that there is some debate over when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD, and when Jesus is talking about his coming again at the end of the age. That's what makes this chapter so difficult to navigate. When is he talking about which event? So, for full disclosure, as I've wrestled over this passage, um the section headings I added in the bulletin are, are there as a way to show you one of the ways that commentators have sought to explain the way Jesus addresses the two events. Okay? So, there's disagreement on on which words describe which event that Jesus is saying. But I've chosen to land on this one and and I think I'm in good company. So, Here's something that will help, I think. Jesus is speaking here like an Old Testament prophet. He's uh, using what we call apocalyptic language. So when Jesus is speaking of the, these two events, it's not like he's looking down on top of them like a map. Actually, he's in the map, on the ground, looking across the landscape. For example, when you get a signal point, down here, and you look out across the Tennessee River, and you see Raccoon Mountain, and then just beyond that, you see Lookout Mountain, right? Um, From that vantage point, they look pretty close together. There's Raccoon Mountain, and there's Lookout Mountain, right next to each other. But if you look at them on a map, or if you're way up in an airplane, you actually see how far apart they are. There's actually many miles between them. And this is what's happening with Old Testament prophecy, and this is what's happening with Jesus' prophecy here. These two events are like those two mountains. The destruction of the temple is Raccoon Mountain. It's it's up close. The second coming of Jesus, at the end of the age, is Lookout Mountain. It's, It's further away. It's the most distant of the two events. But when Jesus talks about them, it sounds like and it looks like they're both happening at the same time. But if you look at these events on a map or a timeline or from God's point of view, let's say, there are actually many years between these two events. As we know, one of them has already happened and we're still waiting for the other one. So as we read the rest of Mark 13, those section headings that i put in there, will will help us determine which mountain, which event Jesus is talking about. Because he will alternate between the two. So, let's dive in, shall we? Um, get ready for the destruction of the temple, Jesus says in verses 5 through 23. First, in verse, in verse 5, he's, he's warning them, look out for false Christs. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then he mentions uh, this sign of international wars. You'll start hearing about international wars. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Don't be alarmed. This is supposed to happen before the temple is destroyed. And then in verse 9 through uh, 13, he talks about the persecution of Christians. He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's going to be a severe persecution in those days. And then he, then he talks about, he's talked about international wars, but then he says, then there's going to be war in Judea. And In verses 14 um, through 20, he talks about, now when the war gets closer to home, you need to pay more attention. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he, not, he ought not to be, let, let the reader understand. Now, this is one of the most confusing verses. Let me try to help you understand this. Jesus, when he says something about this abomination of desolation person standing where he ought not to be, he's borrowing language from the prophet Daniel. He's referring to an abomination so detestable that it causes the people of God to leave the temple desolate. And this was likely fulfilled in A.D. 67 and 68, just a couple of years before the temple was destroyed, when zealots occupied the temple precincts. And They were murdering people inside the, the temple uh, properties, desecrating the holiness of the temple. And eventually, at the end of this period, they installed a clown named Fani, uh, as the as a false high priest. It's kind of a mockery. The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand. When you see that happen, folks, get ready. The temple is about to be destroyed. And so Jesus says, When you see that happen, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Get out of there. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. When he says that, it's almost a direct quote from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It's, It's prophetic hyperbole describing how horrific and complete the destruction of Jerusalem will be. It's going to be as bad as anything we've ever seen, he's saying. He goes on in verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then he ends this section about getting ready for the destruction of the temple by saying again, look out for false Christ. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even believers in Jesus. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. I'm not going to try to go back and explain all these details. I can't do that. If you want to email me, I'll send you some resources. You can read some things. But I just want to show you the big picture of this verses 5 through 23, it's, it's like a sandwich. This is going to make you hungry. The pieces of bread in the sandwich are verse 5 and verse 23. Look out for false Christ. Okay? And then, on each of those pieces of bread, he spices it up a little bit with a little mustard, and he talks about wars. Okay? But the meat of this section The meat of this section in verses 9 to 13 is, you will be persecuted. The meat of his message is, you're going to be persecuted in the days to come for the sake of bearing witness about me and for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to all nations. Jesus is warning his disciples about the suffering they will will face for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. And they would remember what he told them in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save his life. So He's warning them. Here it comes. It's coming. It will happen within your generation. And in this section, he uses a word. Three times. It's very significant, actually. It's the word blepo. It means to see or look. In verse 1, he says, See that no one leads you astray. Look, look out. In verse 9, he says, Be on your guard. That's how it's translated there. In other words, look out. And in verse 23, again, be on your guard. He's telling them, keep your eyes open, be on the lookout for what? And here's where I think it starts to help us. We're not not looking for the destruction of the temple, but there are things in here that Jesus says that will help us in these times when it seems like it's the end of the world as we know it. Look out for what? He, He says, be on the lookout for false Christs. Jesus is saying, you know who I am. Don't be fooled by false saviors. Listen, things are going to get crazy and you're going to be tempted to think that I've abandoned you, and there will be many out there who would like to claim that they know how to save you from this mess. Don't believe them. Don't entrust yourself to them. Trust me. Trust what I've said. Now, how how could this be helpful to us in our troubled times? We I doubt many of you are fooled by the people who run around, the cult leaders who run around saying, I am Jesus, I am the Christ, I've come back. Many of you, I'm sure, are not fooled by the TV preachers who who are false prophets. Um, so what, how does this help us? Let me tell you. Let me try to help us. This is what helped me. Um, recently, Abby was uh, hanging out with Evie Lee West, you know, cute little two-year-old Evie Lee. And um, she was watching her for Jim and Bonnie, and so they decided to take a walk in the neighborhood. And as they were walking through the neighborhood, one of the neighbors was in the garage or on the driveway with a, a big table saw and cutting wood, and it was really loud. You know how shrill that sound is. And it scared Evie Lee, so she grabbed on the Abby and Abby picked her up and, and Evie, Evie Lee kept saying over and over again, "Miss Abby's got you, Miss Abby's got you. Miss Abby's got you Miss Abby's got, you. Miss Abby's got you. she's comforting herself with the good news that Miss Abby's got her. She doesn't have to be afraid. I think Jesus would have us remember in you know, all these crazy fearful times. Jesus has got you. He would like us to say to ourselves over and again and, and to each other, Jesus has got you. Jesus has got you. And you might say, well, I, there's, I'm not afraid of anything. Um, well, honestly, I, I think we're all afraid of something these days. I mean, yes, some of us are afraid of sickness, Some of us are afraid of death. Some of us are afraid that someone we love, a friend or a family member, might get sick or die. We've seen it happen. Others of us are afraid of economic collapse. Afraid that all of our income is going to get sucked away. And what are we going to do? We're afraid of the loss of a job. We're afraid of the loss of of freedoms. We're afraid of the loss of our great nation. Some of us are afraid of which guy's going to get elected in November. These are legitimate things to be anxious about, really. But when things get crazy and it's the end of the world as we've known it, it doesn't make sense to say, Netflix has got you. It doesn't make sense to say, Food and drinks got you, Jimmy. It doesn't make sense to say my political party's got me. It doesn't make sense to say, don't worry, 401K's got you. It doesn't make sense to say job's got you. Boyfriend's got you. Football's got you. It doesn't even make sense to say mountain fellowship's got you. Because as good as all those things are, they ain't got you. They can't save you. They can't rescue you. None of those things can hold the full weight of who you are in the midst of the hard things you're going through. None of those things died for you. None of those things love you. Jesus has got you. Be on the lookout for these false saviors that are trying to tell you they got you. Jesus says there's something else to be on the lookout for. In verse 9 he says, be on your guard. You will be persecuted. But that persecution will lead to gospel opportunities. Opportunities to bear witness about me, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And maybe that's why they need to get pushed out of Jerusalem. So they'll take the gospel to the nations. Opportunities to say whatever is given you by the Holy Spirit in that hour. Be on the lookout for opportunities to bear witness to me and to the good news about what I've done, Jesus said. Keep your eyes on the mission. Depend on the Spirit to equip and empower you to speak about me in the places I've put you. This is a wise warning for us in our troubled times. Keep your eyes on the mission, Mountain Fellowship. Keep making disciples in the places I put you, Jesus says, in the places where you worship and work and live and school and play. So that perhaps when people see us suffering, just like they're suffering, when they see us suffering and they hear us say and live like we believe Jesus has got me, Jesus has got you, Jesus has got you. When they, when they see that, then maybe like Peter said, they will ask us for a reason for the hope that is within us. And we can say, all I know is Jesus has got me and he's going to get me through. Do you know him? Now, In verses 24 and 27, Jesus talks about the further away mountain, the end of the age. Jesus predicts his return. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the tribulation of the temple's demise, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Stop right there. These are not signs that will happen before he comes, but when he comes. The sun, moon, and stars, and every power of the heavens, these represent every ruler or power that exists. And when King Jesus comes in his cloud of Shekinah glory with power, his glory will outshine their glory. His power will make them fall down and tremble. Verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And that is just another encouragement to the disciples and to the church throughout the ages to carry out the mission of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples so that those elected to believe will come and there will be a great gathering when he comes. And then Jesus turns his attention back to the closer event, the destruction of the temple. He says, but first the temple's destruction is coming soon, verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, and he's talking about verse 14 and the abomination of desolation, when you see that happening, these things taking place, you know that he, or actually, some translations have it, it, you know that it is near at the very gates, not talking about Jesus being near at the very gates, but the abomination of desolation and the destruction of the temple, that event being at the gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You guys are going to witness this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is warning his disciples that just as they can tell summer is near by the sprouting of leaves on the fig tree, so these things that he's told them about will be a sign that the temple is about to be destroyed and a new season is about to sprout forth for the people of God. Jesus predicted it would happen in their generation, and it did. In the meantime, they could count on his word, and they needed to depend on what he has told them even if heaven and earth pass away. Things are going to get intense and hard, and they have to trust what he's told them no matter what happens. Then as the chapter closes, Jesus looks again at the distant event, and he prophesies again about his return. Get ready for the return of Jesus, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father be on guard, there's that, be on the lookout again. And then he starts saying this, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. This is how he sums up this whole prophetic message. Stay awake. Now, this is where we live. We're a long way from 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple. But we are some of those elect who have heard the gospel that's been preached to the nations for almost 2,000 years. And we are looking forward to that last great event, the return of the king. But you'll notice there are no signs in this section. There are no warning signs to look for, just a warning to be ready. Tim Keller says the Bible brings up the second coming of Christ not to inspire us to a particular line of speculation about what it's going to happen but to inspire us to a particular kind of life. In other words, Jesus doesn't want us to be preoccupied with when he is returning. He said he doesn't know when that is either. He wants us to be occupied with how he's called us to live and what he's called us to do until he returns. And just as he challenged his disciples to keep their eyes open, to be on guard against the distraction of false saviors, and to keep their focus on the mission of making disciples, He warns us to stay awake, stay awake, keep awake, stay awake. He says it four times. With all that's going on in 2020, it just might be the end of the world as we've known it. But truth is, today could be the end of the world, period. Jesus could come back today. Lord, come now, please. We have to remember this, though. This teaching from Jesus came just days before another cataclysmic event would happen that Jesus has been predicting all along. He's already told his disciples that he would be handed over to the authorities, wrongfully convicted, mocked, beaten, sentenced to execution on a Roman cross. He would die there, and then on the third day, he would rise again. He's already told them that's coming. And Mark is going to spend the remainder of this gospel describing those events in details, and we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at them. But here's something amazing to think about. Do you know when scholars believe Mark wrote this good news? This account of the crucified king who becomes the living Lord? Mark wrote the story of Jesus between 60 and 70 A.D. He wrote it just years before the temple was destroyed. Why why is that important? Why would the Holy Spirit have Mark record his version of the story of Jesus just years before Christians would suffer severe persecution for proclaiming the story of Jesus? I think it's so that they would find comfort and courage in the very story that they were telling, in the very gospel that they were proclaiming, so that they would remember that Jesus loved them and gave himself for them, so they would remember that he was raised on a cross as the crucified king, but he was raised from the tomb as the living Lord because he's alive and he loves them and he's coming again, they could say to themselves over and over and over again, Jesus has got you. Jesus has got you. Even as they go through this horrible persecution, Jesus has got you. So in the middle of whatever is changing your world as you know it right now, you have to know that your Jesus is the crucified King and the living Lord. Your story is not just the story that happens between your birth and death. As Larry Crabb says, no. That little story is caught up in the larger story of what Jesus is doing between his cross and his coming again. Your little story is not just what's happening between your birth and your death. Your story is part of what he's doing between his cross and his coming again. I'll finish with this. When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to hear Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, speak in person at an outdoor event in Charlotte. And so some friends of mine and I, we went, we got there early, and uh, we were just about as far away from the platform, from the podium, as I am to the soundboard right there. That's how close we were and we waited for hours in the heat and um, you know there were these there were these kind of false rumors oh the motorcade is here motorcade is here so everybody would kind of press toward the front and we're getting crushed no false alarm not in but when the motorcade finally showed up and we could see we knew it was here everybody pressed forward and I mean, to where you couldn't do anything but just be surrounded by people. And we all stood on our tiptoes, trying to see him. Where is he? Is he coming? A friend of mine, she was kind of short, and she couldn't see over all these people, even on her tiptoes. So I said, well, here, get on my shoulders. I could do it back then. Um, We're all just stretching our necks and looking. Where is he? Where is he? There he is. It's the president. I think that's what staying awake looks like. Staying awake looks like your heart on tiptoe waiting for him to come. Not distracted by all the false Christs that are talking to you. You're you're on your tiptoe. You're waiting for him to come. And you're also looking around and seeing who else needs to see him. Who else can I help see? Him? so that I spend these days between his cross and his coming again using my lips and my life to say to myself and to others, "Jesus has got you." Father, would you help us in these crazy difficult days when it seems that the world as we know it, is going to end. Maybe it is. Would you help us? Help our hearts to stay on tiptoe. And help us to help others be looking for him too. Because they long for his return. Because they know he's got them. Help us to be that kind of people we ask. In Christ's name, amen.